it's okay to not be okay. And that's just true. It's okay to not be okay. And in that journey, most women are not okay because it's so hard. Hi, I'm Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools and your host for Work Like a Mother, a podcast dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Today, I'm thrilled to sit down with Heather Avis, an author, podcaster, narrative shifter, and mother to three adopted kids. Our first go-around, my husband Dave and I struggled to get pregnant. We tried for two years before even starting fertility treatments, and we experienced the tears, the fear, the guilt, and the uncertainty that so many couples endure. When I was in deep, I wish I could have heard Heather's wise words. Wherever you are in your parenting journey, whether you're just thinking about starting a family, you're currently trying to conceive, you're pregnant, or have kids at home, Heather's story will resonate with you. After four challenging and heartbreaking years trying to conceive, Heather decided that she had had enough. Enough invasive procedures, enough unsolicited advice from friends, and enough heartbreak. She and her husband decided to adopt. And initially, they thought they'd adopt through a private agency but they changed course and ended up adopting a very young baby with Down syndrome. Three kids later, Heather's parenting journey has been full of challenges, acceptance, learning, and so much love. Heather advocates to shift the narrative about adoption and Down syndrome through her books, her podcasts, and social media presence. Thank you again for for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I know that you have had quite a journey um, to into parenthood, and I thought it would be a good place to start to walk through that journey. Can you share with us your parenting journey? So I have three children, and they are their ages now are 12, 9, and 7. Well, 7 in a week. Um, and... All three of my kids came to me through adoption. So my parenthood journey started with infertility and trying to get pregnant for about four years. My husband and I did everything short of in vitro fertilization. And at the point when we, when we got to that point, um, it was a crossroads for us to either adopt or do IVF. And we chose the path towards adoption. And gosh, that was, I mean, that was almost... 14 years ago now. And so much has changed in the adoption world in the last 14 years. So much has changed in me and my thoughts and views and understanding of adoption. I am such a different person in that space, but I am grateful that that path led me in the ways that it did. So I, we, we went to private agency because we really wanted a healthy infant and it's really your best bet at getting a healthy infant is through a Mm -hmm. private agency where um, usually a birth mother will choose to relinquish her rights and she will choose a family to raise her child. Um, And it's a long, long, long story, but we ended up adopting a little girl who has Down syndrome. And when we learned about her and when she came home with a congenital heart defect and um, 
a lung condition called pulmonary hypertension that we were told was severe enough that it would maybe never go away. And so we, when we learned about her, we weren't excited about that. We didn't want a child with Down syndrome. Um, we didn't want a child who was medically fragile at the time with just so many health issues. It all felt pretty terrifying. Mm-hmm. But um, we're people of faith, and so we we were prayerful about it. And for us, it was just one step in front of another. We didn't want to say yes, but we knew we couldn't say no. And we sat in that tension for, it felt like an eternity, but adoptions go so fast. Um, well, they go so slow for, for a very long time. And then it's like, it's like they just warp speed into parenthood. So it's wait, 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 wait. And then, oh, next week you'll be a mom, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a thing. And we just kept taking one step in front of another. And it led us to saying yes to this little girl. So her name is Mason. Um, and she came home at four months old. We learned about her. Well, we met her when she was three and a half months old. And then in those two weeks of trying to decide whether to adopt her or not. And then she came home and a month later had open heart surgery. Um, she came home on oxygen 24-7, um, multiple medications that we had to give throughout the day and the night. And she was just this little, she had tons and tons of hair. She's Armenian. Um, just this beautiful little girl who was my daughter. And so I brought her into our life and all those things that felt so overwhelming and scary Mm -hmm. just became our normal. And that desire I had had for years and years and years to be a mom was fulfilled. I was a mom and just fell head over heels in love with this little girl. And, you know, for any mom who has a child with a disability or has dealt with a sick child, even if it's just like that trip to the emergency room or if it's been long-term, you do whatever you have to do for your kid, right? Mm -hmm. And you love them in spite of it, because of it, through it, with it, whatever it is. Um, And that's how it was with Macy. I want to go a little bit back to talk about your fertility journey and what that experience was like. I mean, for anyone who's in it or has been in it, it's brutal and it's incredibly isolating and so Mm -hmm. lonely. And every, and even when you hear about people who have gone through it, um, that it's not your story, you know? Mm -hmm. So I remember in the midst of it, so many people sharing their infertility stories with me and, and stories of people they knew and their adoption stories. And none of those stories put a baby in my womb. So Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't want to hear the stories, you know, like the people who would tell the story of, well, we tried for eight years to get pregnant and that's how long it took us. And, you know, and I'm like, a year into the journey and I'm thinking, oh my dear Lord, if I'm doing this for another eight, like seven years, this is not hopeful or helpful, right? Mm. So I felt I felt that a lot. And I think for anyone listening, if that's how you're feeling, it's just okay to feel that way. And um and I I think what that journey taught me and then even just with my journey into motherhood and what my kids have taught me is there there is a time for having to just sit in it mm-hmm. and I think part of the healing takes place when you, it's not even like you want to embrace it. That feels like too um, final or too cheerful of a thing because you don't want it to be the end all be all, right? Your infertility, if you have a desire to be a parent, but a sense of like, this sucks and here we are, right? That idea, like it's okay to not be okay. And that's just true. It's okay to not be okay. And in that journey, most women are not okay 
because it's so hard. We, like I said, we didn't get all the way up to, to going through IVF, but um, our journey was one of like, I tr- after trying to get pregnant for six months, which I, which everyone says is not a long time, but for anyone trying to get pregnant, it's like dog years, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of a sudden six months really feels like three years and you're thinking what is happening here and everyone's like, it's only been six months. You're like, exactly. I should be six months pregnant right now. Like I should be having a baby in three months. Um, and I just think my gut knew something was off and wasn't right because I was 20, how old was I? I was like 23 at the time, super young, no health issues, no reason why I shouldn't get pregnant easily. And then I remember thinking if it, if it's a year, I don't think I can do it. Like, I don't think I can handle that. And then a year and then you just start counting the months and it's like, if I get, I was a teacher. So it's like, if I get pregnant this month, then I'll take maternity leave during the summer and then I'll have all this time off or whatever. And, um, that, that game of counting the months just kept happening. And so we would see specialty doctors and it was just like this mystery. I have a mystery infertility. I don't have the typical characteristics for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, I have endometriosis, but I didn't, I don't have any of the symptoms for endometriosis. All this was found out through like diagnostic surgeries. And I, there was just a point when I did a dye test, which is when they shoot dye to see if your tubes, your fallopian tubes are clear. Um, and that was, I was about two and a half, maybe three years into the journey of my infertility. And when I had that procedure done and I got really, really sick from it. So it's very rare, like less than 2% of the women who have that procedure get this infection that I got. And so after the infection, my doctor, and I was very, very sick. I had to take two full weeks off of work. I could barely get out of bed. I was in and out of the emergency room. And the doctor, my um, OBGYN basically said, you know, we can do another surgery to see what kind of damage this did, but an infection with like this um, causes significant damage. And mm. at that point I was for me, my personal feeling was I am so done with doctors poking and prodding me. And mm-hmm. so when we got to that crossroads of IVF and adoption, there were some other weighing factors for our decision, but a big piece of it for me was like, I didn't want to open my legs for another strange man. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm not, I can't do it. I cannot let another person, I couldn't imagine walking into a fertility clinic and like, okay, lay down, spread them again. And I just couldn't do it my, um, my heart was too fragile and my body was done with all of that. So, so then what's so interesting for me and my journey is, um, by the time Macy came home and I'd say a few, even just a few months into my motherhood. And for sure, by the time we adopted our second daughter, I no longer wanted to get pregnant. And in my infertility, there was definitely a mourning the loss of all of it. I wanted, I was a birth junkie. I grew up with my parents are Bradley birth instructors, which is like an all natural um, birthing instruction. And I remember growing up around like women and and men in my parents' living room doing breathing exercises. And um, I went to my sister, my older, I have an older sister with kids. I had been at her kids' births and I'm just love it. So I had to mourn the loss of being pregnant, giving birth breastfeeding, all these things I wanted to do, you know, but, but, but for me at the end of that, um, grief process, I just was so grateful to get to be an adoptive mom. And there's nothing in me that wants to get pregnant at all. And, um, I know it's not the case for everybody, but that's been my, that's been my journey. 
for infertility. So I feel like I talk about with with disability and with infertility and wanting to be a mom, there's, you're going to get to another side, right? Like to the moms who are listening and in it, it's okay not to be okay. And I know you don't want to hear this because you're in it, but there is another side mm-hmm. and you will get there. You will get there. And the journey is different for everybody, but you'll get to that other side and there, and you will be a mom and there will be a time. What an incredible story. You, so you adopt Macy, she's four months. When do you decide to adopt another child and what did that process look like? Had it changed from the, the time when you adopted Macy? Yes, so much. Um, we went into the adoption process the first time with wanting a lot of control. So a healthy infant, a private agency, we had both been working full time and um, we had savings to pay for a private adoption. They're very expensive. And then Mason came into our life and rocked our world forever and for the better. And we just realized, oh gosh, we wanted, we thought we knew what we wanted in a child and we got on paper everything we said no to. And she's a miracle and she's incredible. And, and just fast forward, she's totally healthy. We also got to go on this journey with her as a sick child. And the other side of that for her was health. Mm -hmm. And, um, And so we just realized that the thoughts and desires that we, that we had for our lives that seemed best weren't necessarily. And the thing that we were so scared of and actually trying to avoid maybe was the best thing that could have happened to us. And so for our second adoption, um, we started the process once Macy was off of oxygen because having a, a child with medical needs is super intense and all consuming. Um, and so we went with the count, our local County. So it's different in every state in the United States, but it's basically like a, through the foster care system. Um, a County adoption is totally free. There's no fees and there, the biggest difference, there's so many differences between a private adoption and a County adoption. But one of the biggest differences is you're often going to be adopting a child who's, um, the rights of the parents have been terminated because they're considered basically unfit to parent. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a private adoption, it's a woman choosing that. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge difference. And you're often going to have children. I mean, when we did our classes for the county adoption, we were told, um, you know, you will get a child who is drug exposed in utero at best, and there's going to be trauma and lots of different health issues. And so it felt riskier. But it also we knew was the right way to go. So we started that process. um, And then in 2011, Macy was born in 2008. In 2011, we got a phone call from our social worker about a little girl, um, a baby. So it's pretty rare to also, it's also pretty rare to get a baby when you Mm -hmm. adopt through the county unless you're getting a sibling group. So the social workers in classes would joke like, you'll get a baby, but you're also going to get a toddler with that baby, which we were open. We were open to anything really. And we got a call about a little baby girl who was five months old and had no drug exposure in utero and had no disabilities and no major health concerns. Would we want her? And we were going to say yes to any, that was our first call. It was a yes. And so um, we named her Truly Star. We brought Truly home 
She was almost six months old. And um, yeah, she is, we were told in the initial call uh, that she's Hispanic and then she's um, African-American and Guatemalan. And that adds to our family. My husband and I are both Caucasian. I mentioned Macy is Armenian, but she's white. So she's also Caucasian. And um, and so we brought Truly into our lives and became a transracial family as well. And she is a bundle of light and spice <laughs> <laughs> and love. <laughs> I'm curious to hear, so you've now had a medically challenging experience with your first daughter, and now you have this whole new set of challenges by making your family transracial. What have you learned through that process now? It's, it's been over a decade, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. So, 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 so much. We could do an entire episode on what I've learned in the last six months. I'm not even joking. Being a white couple and saying yes to adopting outside of our race is a very big, weighty decision. It should be a very big, weighty decision. When we started the adoption process with Macy and I was 20, I don't know how old I was, 25, 26. And I was, at that time, my adoption narrative was very much focused on birth, on adoptive parents. You didn't, there was not a lot of thought about the adoptees um, or even about birth families. It was like, this is, that was kind of the narrative, even just around adoption is like the hero who is the adoptive parent kind mm-hmm. of, and um, which is a very false and harmful narrative in my opinion. But it was, to me, it was like, wouldn't it be cute to adopt a little black baby? Like we'd be so cute, you know? And that line of thinking is so harmful. Um, but as it goes in life, you can't know what you don't know. And so, which is why it's important to always be a lifelong learner and willing to grow. And so because Truly came home, um, it opened up our lives to opportunities to be in relationship with people who are African-American or Guatemalan, um, or biracial or, to read books and listen to articles and listen to social workers who have been in it for a long time with adoptive families like this and to realize that um, this is a weighty thing and it is for truly and it is for us. And so what happened then is we started by realizing that we believe that exposure, she needs racial mirrors. So she <laughs> needs exposure to people who look like her. Um, so that starts at home with toys and books and movies and shows and things like that. Pictures on our walls. Those are just little things that ways we can be intentional as white parents raising outside of our race. And then we ended up moving to a different city for a while where we attended a church that was predominantly African-American. And so we were able to have, truly was able to be in relationships with people who look like her and it changes everything, right? Relationship changes everything. And it's changed my view on race in America. It's changed my view on what it means to raise a child outside of my race, what that's going to look like for her. And so, I mean, fast forward to 2020 and all of the stuff that's happening in our nation in terms of race, specifically to Black lives and listening to adult adoptees who are transracial adoptees and uh, meaning that they are they are a different race than their parents. Um, and 
listening to the voices of people who I love, who I have relationship with, who are black, whose experience is very different. And then, I mean, I think your original question was something like how, like, what have we learned and, and how have we changed? And it's just changed everything. It's changed everything. And so my husband and I are very much in the posture of listening and learning in this space specifically and following Truly's lead and having voices in our ears who can say to us, hey, the way that you respond to this as a white person is harmful. Mm. Um, You know, like trusted voices because we've built those relationships. We are so immersed in the learning of it. We no longer have things to teach about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I did, you know, like when for years there, I thought I had a lot to say and now I just have a lot to learn. So much in motherhood and parenthood in in general, though, is also just trying like to yeah. hear you talk about it and to hear how intentional you are, how much work you're doing to shoulder that responsibility with knowledge. It's really inspiring um, to, to hear that. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a learning journey for sure. But yeah, parenting is, right? Anyone raising a kid, it's like, shoot, this is really hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually, I saw on your Instagram, you had this really fantastic post the other day and it struck a chord with me because I feel like I, this is an occurrence in our household on a weekly basis where you lose your cool, Mm. you um, get frustrated with your kids, you sort of snap a little and then you feel really terrible. And how do you weather those ups and those downs? How do you recover and rebuild and repair your relationship with your children after you have one of those moments? And I loved your post because I thought it was so, I needed to hear it right then. It it happened to be like, I think it was yesterday. Um, I needed to hear that message because I was having one of those, one of those days. Um, But how do you, how do you think of that, um, and and how do you rebuild in those instances with your kids? Yeah, the instance you're talking about, I lost my cool so bad, and for me, it looks like um, raising my voice, but speaking in a way that is like shaming my children for what they're doing and who they are. It's just so shameful um, that I did that, but anyone raising multiple, a child, (laughs) multiple children, and then we're in this pandemic and it's so layered. And we are, as parents, we're supposed to navigate this for ourselves and our kids. It's so heavy to navigate this, what we're supposed to do with this pandemic as an individual. And then you have to do it for your kids, like shoulder that also. Mm -hmm. So yeah, getting to that point of like, if they just don't listen to me, I don't know if your kids listen, I, my kids don't listen and it's not even hard things like, Hey guys, time to brush your teeth. But you get to the end of the day and it's like, Oh, this is the 7,000th time you haven't listened to me about this little thing. And so then I lose it. Um, and I was so mad at myself and I didn't want to talk about it. And, and then that night I just didn't sleep great because I felt so bad about it. And then the next morning, of course, I'm going to apologize to them. I woke up early that morning and the kids were still sleeping. I was making coffee and they each like came in one at a time. And I took them aside one at a time and just said, I'm so sorry. You know, I, and I say, um, sometimes when I'm feeling stressed, 
I do things and say things that I don't mean and I'm working on it and I'm mm-hmm. sorry. And they hug me and and that's that. And I didn't even need to apologize because they love me so much, right? Mm-hmm. But I did because they need to know that. And what's so funny is, because this was a few days ago, I think yesterday, my middle daughter was um, getting frustrated at our son and she <laughs> she walked, she did something unkind and we just like, oh, hurtful. And then she left the room and she came back and she said, I'm so sorry. Just sometimes when I feel stressed, <laughs> I say things and do things that I don't mean and I'm working on it. And it's like, yes, that is what we do. That's what we need to say to each other as adults. Sometimes when I'm feeling stressed, I do and say things I don't mean and I'm sorry and I'm working on it. And it's, it's that I'm sorry and I'm working on it part, right? Because it's going to mm-hmm. keep happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now this yeah. is the story you were just sharing is with your youngest, with your son, Tell, um, tell us a little bit about that adoption journey. What did that look like? Well, let me back up a tiny bit. After Truly came home, I knew I wasn't done. And so it, it wasn't like we knew how many kids we were going to have, but I just knew that we weren't finished. And, um, and then we had, when Macy was five and Truly was two, having a five-year-old with Down syndrome is, there's, a, there's some additional needs and some additional things required of a parent. And so there's therapies and all these things. It's it's just a lot. There's a lot happening. And then truly, like I said, she was just energy. She's just light and spice. And so she was a lot and bouncing off the walls and lots and lots and lots of energy. And I was at a moment in life where maybe you are at this moment. I think lots of mothers have been or will be at some point where... Um, I'm like, my capacity is maxed. I am holding this plate and my plate is full. And if someone puts one more thing on my plate, my whole body will physically crack into like, I, mm-hmm. like I'm done. I'm a goner, but we knew one other kid. So we did start the adoption process because we figured in a year, I wouldn't feel that way anymore, which is just foolish thinking <laughs> um, because that's not how it works. But we started the process and we went, we went the county again. Um, and we, they do this thing called taking care of business day. They do it once a month. You do your fingerprinting, your background check, your TB test, your orientation and your initial paperwork all in a day. And so because we had done that before, they fast tracked us through cause we were a second time family. And then the next morning, um, less than 24 hours later, my friend called me and said, Oh my gosh, I just saw the picture you put up. And I just got done talking to a birth mom who's seven months pregnant the baby has a congenital heart defect and a Down syndrome diagnosis, and it's a boy, and she wants to create an adoption plan, and you should adopt him. And it was a moment of like, dang it, ah, like I, I can't take on one more thing, but yes, of course, you know, like now you can't unknow something. <laughs> and so um, by the end of that day, I was on Facebook talking back and forth with this birth mom, and we made a plan to meet in person the next week and we had this opportunity to walk through those last two months of her pregnancy with her. And I didn't have that with our middle daughter. Mm. Truly, we don't know any information about her birth family. We don't have, we have nothing. We have nothing. And I, and that's another conversation, but that makes me really sad for her. And with Macy, we do have a relationship with the birth family, but we met them when Macy was three months old. So we didn't get to know uh, um, them while they were pregnant. So we got to know his his birth mother and go to doctor's appointments and and be there the day he was born. 
not at the birth, but shortly after. Um, and it was so, and so he came home in December that year, two months after I, we filled out our application and it was, um, a really, I'm really grateful for that opportunity because it really shifted how I felt towards birth families. Um, I had a deep love for Macy's birth family, our daughter, our oldest daughter, and we had some interactions with them that really, really changed my perspective on birth families. But to walk through the last couple months with this birth mother, and she's my age, we're the same age, and and to say goodbye to her at the hospital, I can I mean, I can't. If I was telling the story in detail, I would just burst into tears because I. It's not anything that you could ever prepare to experience, and I'm experiencing it as the one receiving a child, um, and it was crushing as it should be, right? Like necessarily so. And having this deep, deep love for this woman who is not my friend, um, because that's not an appropriate relationship. She's not my family, right? Because that's not an appropriate relationship. She's my son's mom. And that's who she is. And she's very, very important to me and to my son and our whole family. And yeah. And so August, our son's name is August. um, And he was born with Down syndrome. He came home at two days old. And then he had open heart surgery four months later and did great. And he's healthy and magic. He is a little bundle of magic that walks around my house all day long. <laughs> and sweet as can be. Wow. I, <laughs> I'm just in awe of your, your journey, your stories. I know that you've written multiple books. You host a podcast yourself. You have a blog, you have an amazing social media presence, and you have three children who you've so kindly shared their stories. <laughs> How do you juggle all of these things? I think like any mom, right? Like our capacity expands. And so when I told, when I said that um, comparison to like my plate was full and I couldn't put one more thing on it, I don't, I think our life as a mom is not like a plate full of things were like a balloon and you just, it just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding. And so for those moms who have one kid and you're bringing your second and you have those moments of like, how can I love this child? And how are we going to do this transition? And I can't do anything more. And then you do. And so I think that's what it is. You do the thing that you need to do. And, um, I have an incredible husband who is an amazing dad and we are equal partners in parenting and, and without that, I, I couldn't do what I do. When needed, we ask for help. And so we have a babysitter who comes every week for a few hours a week. And that allows me to record podcasts and sit down and write. Um, so you just do the thing that you need to do, right? That's what we do as moms. You make it sound so simple. Um... I mean, it's not. We all know that it's not at all. And you And you prioritize. And the thing, the truth of it is, my husband and I, we run this business called The Lucky Few. And the things that you listed that we do are a part of our business. And our business has grown so, 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 so slow because our priority has been our kids. The reality is, and we all know, it's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And it requires a lot of sacrifice and, um, and days of feeling, feeling like I'm the worst and I'm failing and everyone's better than me. I have those days often too. <laughs> Do you have any advice for parents who are in the adoption process or considering adoption? I think it's super important to note when it comes to adoption. It's really important if you're thinking about adoption or if you've ever thought about adoption or even just viewing an adoption from the sidelines that there is a triad mm-hmm. in an every single adoption and it is a 
an adoptee and a birth family, birth mother, and an adoptive parent. And we've had a narrative in the United States, especially in which the adoptive parent is given the most power in that space. And it's really important that we shift that adoption narrative to not have the adoptive parents be viewed as heroes. I mean, the amount of times people have said to me, oh my gosh, you're amazing. I can't believe that you've done this. Whoa, this amazing thing. And that that's not helpful in the adoption narrative because that where does that leave the adoptee, right? Mm-hmm. Like if if that's if I'm this hero, then that means my children are these victims. My children are incredible and they deserve and should have so much power within the adoption narrative. And then their birth families are there and alive right? Like these real life people who every single day wake up and think about this child that they do not have, Mm -hmm. that they are not raising, who is their child. And it's important, I think, in understanding of adoption and the conversation around adoption to make sure that each player within that triad is heard and seen and valued and um, has space to process what they need to within within that space and that the power doesn't just lie within an adoptive parent. What advice would you give to your pre-mom self? There's that saying, maybe maybe you've heard this, that like in my 20s, I knew everything. In my 30s, I know nothing. And I would tell my pre-mom self, just be a learner. Like you have so much learning to do. Sit in the spaces as a learner and be more curious than you are wanting to prove a point. Just stop judging other moms. Prior to having kids, guy, I knew everything about being a mom, right? It's ridiculous. And then you have kids. You're like, oh, I apologize to every mother I judged in Target. (laughs) So it's so true. There's just so much that I didn't know and I thought I knew and I thought I had a really strong opinion about as well, even though I completely knew nothing. So prior to having kids, um, I would want to say to myself, there are many right ways to do it and to assume the best in others in their parenting journey. Mm -hmm. I wish I did that sooner. I think I I believe that now, but I, I think I could have been more gentle on myself as a parent in the beginning if I thought that way. Well, thank you, Heather. Thank you so, so much. It's been lovely chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This was a great conversation. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Bridget Garsh, and this is Work Like a Mother. I'm excited to share another amazing Working Mama story with you next week. But before I go, I have a quick favor to ask. Please help us spread the word by giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for more working moms to discover our show. Thanks, and have a great week.